Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers and darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the, to the ends with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The armor of God. Now we just finished the spiritual warfare series which it took. It was 12 weeks that it took to go through that, but I thought it was important and as I said, that wasn't my intention when I started it. I, I really thought it would be four to maybe six at the most. But it was the more that I, I really dug into this, the more I began to realize we don't know anything about spiritual warfare. The things that I'd been taught on spiritual warfare the better part of my life were not right. They were wrong. They were so wrong because we acted as spiritual warfare was just this, this, this practice, this thing that we do. That we jump in there and we're doing battle with the devil. Right? We're boxing with them or whatever the case may be. And yet, when I begin to really study that, I begin to realize that the battlefield is not on his turf. The battlefield's on our turf and where it was and all of that kind of stuff. And so these two things segue very nicely into one another because of this. It says put on the whole armor of God for one purpose, that we can withstand the wiles of the devil. And as we talked about in that series, the word wiles is method. It's the road that he takes, the, the, the devices that he uses, his schemes, if you And so, as we dig into this, we're going to go through each and every single piece of this armor and the significance of it, and why we have to do it, and what it is, and how we do it. Because too often we just say, put it on, but we don't say, how do we put it on? And so we're going to break this down piece by piece, but look at, let's read this again, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10 here. And break this down a little bit. It starts, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Whose power are we strong in? His. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? Stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, how many times did you see the word against used there? Six. I did the math for you. Isn't that nice of me? So there's something when we see in biblical interpretation, right? A big fancy word called hermeneutics. All right? I don't expect you to write that down or remember it because there's not going to be a test. But hermeneutics is nothing more than how we interpret Scripture. And one of the principles inside of this is when you see a word repeated over and over, it's usually a sign to pay attention. It's almost like flashing lights, look here, dig further, go, go past this. And so, what we see here is what we are against, right? I mean, look at it. We're not, we are not against flesh and blood. But we're standing against the wiles of the devil, against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers and darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So some other places that maybe that we can see this is just one example, but in John, the chap, book of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter four different times. 
Now, you've got to remember that we are the ones that put these in the chapter and verse and all of that as a place of, of a way to kind of go and find something a little more easily. Because if we all had the exact same Bible, we'd have to say, all right, open up to page 465, uh, three paragraphs down, you know, second line to get where we were going. And so that's why we were, these were put in. But a lot of these chapters are one single story that is just playing out. And sometimes because of the chapter breaks and the verse breaks, we tend to isolate things and we miss the significance of something that is going on there. And that's kind of why I always say there's this, this rule in hermeneutics is at a minimum, read 20 verses before, 20 verses after to, in order to a, uncover a truth perhaps that is there. Sometimes it requires more. But in these three chapters... The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Comforter four times. And this is because Jesus is trying to convey something. Is that the Holy Spirit is our Comforter. That's significant because Jesus is preparing them for His departure. I'm not going to be Him or be here. What is your comfort right now? Your dependence upon me. But I'm going. But don't worry. The Lord is going to send the Holy Spirit. And if He just said the Holy Spirit, does that bring peace to you? No. Not necessarily, it could. But he said he's bringing the comforter who is the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's the one who comforts. It's conveying an important truth. In these three chapters, he also refers to him as the Spirit of truth three times. He says that he will, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. And so, so you don't need to know everything now because he's the Spirit of truth. He'll guide you to where you need to be. He's going to bring you comfort and he's going to lead you to truth. And so, again, this is just a way that God is conveying something very important to us that we have to have an understanding. And so when we see the word against you six times, we need to realize that this is very powerful. Ephesians 6 is clearly giving us a clear picture of who our battle is against and who it's not against. No different than 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which we read for the last 12 weeks, talking about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against... You see it again. This is Paul writing both of these. It's going on and on and on. Now, ironically enough, if you study biblical numerology, and I almost hate to even use that term because it's got a bad connection with it, but there is principles that when you see certain numbers, they tend to convey some sort of meaning. Like seven is perfection. But six happens to be the number of man. Now, man was created on the sixth day. Whether that's a coincidence or not, I don't know. But you see this, these truths here. Ironically here, six being the number of man, would convey something to us if we look at it like this. The word against is used six times. Who's to resist all of those things? Man is. We are. A lot of times we put this on God. Right? All right, God, send him away. You take care of the devil. God, I have this problem. You go fix it. Fix it for me now, please. Thank you. Amen. Right? We, 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 we talk like that. We do these things like this, but we are told over and over that it is us to resist the devil. Who does it? We do it. We have to. If we don't, nobody's going to do it for us. Jesus already defeated Satan, but we must resist Satan. We must resist the things that he uses. But why do we do this? Why are we told to do this? And it's for this one important truth. Jesus gave us the authority. You see it in Mark chapter 16. I give you authority too. Okay? So this authority that we're talking about, that, that the Lord gave us, you see a picture of this in Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 14. And if you would, flip over there, because I kind of want you to see this. Exodus chapter 14. This is dealing with Moses. 
And he's standing in front of the Red Sea. And so I want you to get a picture of this in your mind. They've just escaped Egypt. They've got all the Egyptians chasing after them. They're going to kill them all. And God's leading them there. And they come up to the Red Sea, to the banks of the Red Sea. And Exodus 14 and verse 15 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Now stop. When we think of that, why do you cry to me? What would that be a picture of? Pray. Praying, right? We cry to God. We pray to God. Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. What is he telling us here? Don't cry to God. Moses had to do it. Praying to God in the face of a demonic attack is a waste of time. Don't cry to me. Use the authority that I've given you. Now, in studying this out, I saw something that I've never really noticed before. Maybe you guys have, and that's great. But Moses' rod and Aaron's rod were a symbol of the authority given by God. When Moses is getting ready to go to Pharaoh, God's saying, I want you to go. Appears to him in the burning bush. I want you to go before Pharaoh. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. How will they know that I'm sent by you? And God says, what are you holding in your hand? And Moses said, I'm holding a rod. He's like, well, throw it on the ground. Turns into the snake. You guys kind of know the story. So that was interesting enough. But he's saying, use this. Then as you look into the, all the ten plagues that, that God sent, most of them had something to do with either Moses or Aaron using their rod. rod in the sea and it will be turned to blood. Right? All of that. And here we see it again. God's authority given to Moses, given to Aaron to be his representative. It's the same thing that Jesus has given us, right? This is just a picture of it in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. A lot of the physical things that were done in the Old Testament have spiritual applications to us today. They come from God. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, now this is just prior to this, Jesus had sent out 70 people all right, he said, I want you to go. And they come back to him. And they're all excited because he, they're like, hey, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, he was like, don't be excited about that. Be excited about that you're, you're going to be with me. But verse 19 says, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing by, shall by any means hurt you. You know what the word all means in the Greek? It's very complicated. It means all. So just in case you've never put that together, it means some. It doesn't mean everything, but it literally means all of it. Now the serpents and scorpions you see here are explained later in chapter 11 of what those are. Those are a symbol of Satan. They're a symbol of demons, demonic powers. And he says, I've given you all the power of the enemy. Why do you think it says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper? Because it can't unless you allow it. And guess what? We allow it all the time. It's the authority that we have that is from Christ that gives us dominion over the enemy. And the key is from Christ. It's from God. We don't just have dominions because of who we are. We have dominion because of who He made us. Most evil things have their roots in the devil, in some facet or another. Now, it could be something that we have done, 
right? Sickness is not of God. It's a curse of the fall. It's a curse of sin. And the enemy will use it and can use it against you. But sometimes sickness is a result of an uncrucified flesh. I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine. Got up to 450 pounds. Went to the doctor. And he was a type 2 diabetic. And he called me up. And he said, I don't know how I got this. I thought that God said that no sickness shall come upon me. And I'm like, you can't spend your weeks at the buffet doing this. We, he's brought that on himself. Now, God can heal it. God can help him. God can do all sorts of things. But again, there's a certain portion of that that comes upon us. But nothing that is evil comes from God. And we need to know that. Anything that steals, kills, or destroys is of the enemy. John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Things that steal, kill, and destroy are not of God. Jesus is contrasting himself with the thief, right? Why does the thief come? But I came. You see that? There he's separating himself. Now, this thief here does not specifically refer to Satan, okay? People have made that mistake, and we'll address this more thoroughly next week, but, so don't just put that in there. But we do know this, that anything that steals, kills, and destroys is not of God. It is most certainly of the enemy. The second thing that we need to understand is that Satan works through people, even good people, people that we would consider good. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now this is a big problem for them because they don't want to believe this. Okay? Verse 22, Then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. Now who has the guts to rebuke Jesus? Good luck with that. Saying... Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This idea was not Peter's, specifically. You see, God had a plan that he laid out before the foundations of the world. Jesus came to fulfill that plan. How do we get man reconciled with God? Jesus came here to do just that. Peter loved Jesus with everything he had. And the idea that Jesus would have to die was something that he could not wrap his mind around. Why? Because what happens with death? It creates separation. As you found out, there's not a lot of people that raise from the dead. And even though Jesus is telling him this, he's not believing the word of God. Prior to this, he said, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, you are right, Peter. This was not revealed to you by man, but by God. And upon this rock, I will build my church. He knows who he is, and yet he's denying the word that he's telling. No, 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 no. You're not going to go die. You're not going to do this. We'll protect you. You see, it tries to protect him, and Jesus puts the guy's ear back on. But he was doing what most would consider a good thing and trying to keep Jesus from dying, but yet in doing that good thing, he's going against the very will and plan of God. We have to understand that Satan will put ideas and thoughts in our minds that on paper seem good, but sometimes they're contrary to the will of God. 
you see this happen in churches a lot because we all have opinions, right? We all know how things should go, or at least we think we do. Opinions are kind of like armpits. Everybody has them. Some of them stink. You know what I'm saying? Right? Well, we all have opinions. Like the church resists change unless the change was somebody's idea and then they like it, but then somebody else doesn't like it. You see what I'm saying? I mean, but we do this. But we think we're protecting the church and we're protecting the people, and really all we're doing is creating strife and division. Something was said that I didn't like, so I called 36 people to let them know about that. All in an effort. We need to pray for that guy. He, he, he's missing it. What are we doing? We're gossiping. We go to the Lord, allow the Holy Spirit to do it. If it's a sin thing, we confront them directly. We don't go to 25 different people. You know, but what are we doing? We think we're doing a good thing, but we're going contrary to the principles that God laid out. And so one of the things that we need to understand is that the devil will mount a continuous attack against your mind. Because if we're going to renew our mind, Satan doesn't want that. Because once our mind is renewed and constantly renewed with the Word of God, now suddenly we become effective for the things that God has for us. And if we become effective, now we're doing damage in Satan's kingdom and we're bringing glory to God's kingdom. And he doesn't want that. So as we begin to go through these next part, and we're going to break down the part of Ephesians 6 of who the battle is against, we need to understand that the devil is mounting this continuous attack, number one. But there are four questions that I want you to have in your mind every single week when we look at this piece of armor and that piece of armor and the things that we're against. These are the four questions. Number one, where is the battle? We answered that for you in the last uh, series. Second, who or what are you battling? Third, what is the method of attack? And fourth, for what purpose do we wear the armor? When you're looking at all of these, if you have these questions kind of in the back of your mind, you'll begin to unveil exactly what Paul was telling us, the whys, the hows, and all of this kind of stuff. One of the problems is in with American church, and I say this, and I, I hate to paint everybody with a broad brush, but we need to understand this, is that because we always think that we know what a word means or we imply a meaning on it, we read it quickly, we never ask the questions of why. Why does this work like this? Maybe I don't understand this. Maybe I need to get a principle that God's laying here. Having a conversation just this week with a friend of mine about the book of Job. And the problem is, is we have such a superficial understanding about the book of Job. That, you know, we depend on God and we shouldn't have things bad in our life. And, but God will always bring us through in the end, you know, and stuff. And that is a truth there, but there's way more to it than that. We have a Sunday school application to it. When God is saying, dig in deep, there's truth here. There's gold hidden here. Go find it. So we need to look at this. The word devil comes from two Greek words. It's diabolos, but it's broken down from two. The first one is dia or dia, however you say it. It's the word through. And it carries the idea of penetration. The next one is balo, which means I throw, as in I throw a ball or I throw a rock. And so when you put these two compounded together, the, it's basically this, the act of repeatedly throwing a ball or a rock against something until it penetrates that barrier and breaks through to the other side. That's the Greek word of that. Now let's apply that to our enemy. The devil is the one who continually strikes and strikes again, beating against the walls of people's minds over and over again until finally he breaks through and penetrates their thought process. This just describes one of the many names of the devil that we've got here, but Paul is urging the Ephesian church to put on the armor of God because we are in constant battle with the enemy over our mind. I deal with people all the time, not just here, but I mean, I've got people that I know, you know, around the country from where I went to school and things like that. And you can see where they are based on the words that they say, because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And so here it is. They know the truth of God, 
but they're denying the power of it because they're not practicing it because their mind is getting in the way. You see the weakness there because all they talk about are the bad things that are going on in life instead of the truth of God's Word. We don't deny the bad. We do something about it. See, what's happened at some point in the church is that we almost can't even say anything that's negative because we don't want to make a negative confession or something like that. And we've completely taken this principle way overarching. It's not that this doesn't exist. It's that God said something about it. And I'm going to believe the truth instead of the lie. We have to keep our minds pure to the things of God. We have to keep in mind that just prior to this, Paul gave a lot of directives to the Ephesian church. Look at this. In Ephesians, this is all in chapter 4, but in verse 25, he said to put away lying, to speak truth with your neighbor. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Verse 27, give no place to the devil. You guys want to guess what the word no place in the Greek means? It means no place, right? You guys are catching up. You're doing well. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no more. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Sin. And verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice be put away from you. Why is Paul saying all of this to these guys? Because a consecrated life is a prerequisite to real spiritual warfare. He's saying, get this stuff straight. Don't give the enemy a foothold that he can latch onto you with. Do the things that God said and put on the armor. When we have areas in our lives that are unattended, uncommitted, unsurrendered, we leave gaping loopholes through which Satan is able to continue to exert his schemes in our life. These are the wiles of the devil. And that is why we put on the armor of God. We have to get things sanctified. So let's look at the four classifications of demon that Paul talks about. The first one being principalities. The second one, powers. The third one being the rulers of the darkness of this world. And the fourth, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now most scholars would agree that the language that's being used here in this verse, in this whole passage really, is militaristic in nature. And that Paul is giving a sort of rank of demons, if you will. That these aren't just abstract that they are set up and they're orderly. So the first one being principalities. This word comes from the Greek word archas, A-R-C-H-A-S, which is an old word symbolically used to denote ancient or ancient times. It's also used to depict individuals who hold the highest and loftiest positions of rank and authority. So what Paul's expressing here is that the principalities is a group that have held their lofty positions of power and authority ever since ancient times. That's really what it comes down to when you break it down. So what we look at this is these would be the strategists, that they create strategies against the followers of God to bring them down. Remember, against the wiles of the enemy. One of the meanings of that word is strategy. But look at Daniel's. Look at his life. He worked for the king and he displayed incredible integrity to stand for godliness in the face of all the culture that was going against it. And so... The king is sitting here thinking about putting him in charge over the whole realm, the whole area. But the governors and the satraps, which were just other leaders, didn't like this idea. And they attempt to find something that they can catch him on. 
And so in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They couldn't find anything against him. Why? Because he had consecrated his life. He put away lying. He didn't let the sun go down on, the, his, on his anger. He didn't give the devil a foothold. So as they go to look for things that they can find to throw him in jail to get rid of him, to basically get him in the lion's den, they could find nothing. So then the strategy has to change. We have to do something concerning the law of his God. One of the laws of his God is the God, is that you shall have no other God before me. You will worship no other God. And so what they do is they go to convince the king to decree that anyone who prays to God other than the king will be thrown in the lion's den. What have they done? They passed a law against worshiping God. And we all know the story. He refuses to bow. He's thrown in the lion's den. God rescues him. Why? We follow God's way. He'll take care of the details. He could have gotten fearful. He could have said, no, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want to do that. I'm sorry, you know, I'll, I'll bow my knee. I don't really mean it, but I'll bow my knee to what culture is saying and what the, even the, the law of the land is, even if it is contrary to the word of God. He could have said that. He could have gotten out of it, but he trusted God, knowing that even if I die, I'll spend eternity with him. doesn't matter. My life is just a short span in all of eternity. Another example of this is when Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, he's been teaching and teaching and teaching, and the Pharisees show up, and they're trying to set him up. They're trying to find something to get rid of this guy because they don't like him. So they think they can trap him and get him to say something that is contrary to the law. So in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13, it says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisee and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now they being the leaders, the Pharisaical leaders. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? This is important. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. I mean, here it is. They're trying to set him up. They're saying, if you say that we don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, now he's broken the law. Now they have something against him. They looked and looked and looked and could never find any fault with him. Look at as he's standing there. Pilate's like, I find no fault of him. Do with him what you want, but I can't, I can't do anything according to Roman law. Why? He obeyed the laws that were there that weren't contrary to the laws of God. He spent his entire time dealing with the Pharisees and all these other leaders that were going against the law that God had set up. And these are just a couple of examples of the strategies that were coming against different people, including Jesus. And look, look even further than that, the strategy. I mean, how about when Jesus was born? And they said, I want you to kill all the newborn babies. And again, it's a strategy. Why? To wipe out the Messiah. That's what they're trying, the enemy's trying to do. And it goes clear back into the Old Testament. There's tons and tons and tons of examples that we don't have time to set up, but just know that they're there. The second one, I'm trying to move a little quickly, so just write down what you can, is powers. This comes from the Greek word exousia. It means delegated power and authority or the ability to perform an action. So this is a lower ranking, but yet very powerful because they have the delegated authority to attack whatever they want, whomever they want, 
whenever they want. And this is a lot like what you would see with maybe with the Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, or something, some very strong militaristic type entity to where they are given a basis of orders inside of a certain uh, jurisdiction that they can do anything they want inside of this box. So they don't have to have a specific order for each individual thing. You have the authority to go do this, now go do it. And that is what this word is basically expressing to us in the Greek. And that's the problem. And I'm using a lot of Greek words today because our English language has, they don't per, uh, put out the same emphasis that it does back then. And so I just want to make sure we kind of are aware of what's going on. The third one being the rulers of the darkness of this world is from the word cosmokrateros. Cosmokrateros is broken down into two words. The first one being cosmos, order or arrangement is really what it's saying. The cosmos, cosmology, the order and arrangements of the universe. And then kratos, which means raw power. When you compound these words, the new word depicts raw power that has been harnessed and put into some kind of order. This word was used by ancient Greeks to describe certain aspects of the military. The military was filled with young men who had a lot of ability inside of them, and as in other words, raw power, but these young soldiers would have to be taught to be submitted, to be disciplined, to be ordered, and to be perfectly arranged. Because while they had a lot of ability, they had to teach them the discipline and whatnot. And so this again paints the picture of a militaristic nature of the enemy. And so from this, a lot of it, and again, some of this is conjecture that I'm giving you, okay? Um, the Greek definitions is not, that's what they mean. But, but in, in this, these are the ones that they would say that you would kind of feel. If you've ever walked into an area that just seems highly, some people have said like Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and I've never been down there. But I had a friend of mine that did some mission work down there, and he said, just as an example, but he was going down the street, and he's like, you could just feel the heaviness, the oppression that was there. Now, we're not moved by feelings and stuff. It could be that, you know, he had a bad lunch or something. But there was something there that he was sensing. And what was interesting, he went by one of the voodoo witch doctors, which I think it was a woman, if I remember the story right. And as he's walking by, the lady starts yelling, get away from me. You're a servant of the Most High God. Get away from me. And he never said a word to her, but... You know, whatever. I mean, that would freak you out a little bit. But this is what was, you know, the, the idea here is that these would be the ones that you would kind of sense or feel. Many believe that these would be the ones that you see in Mark chapter 5, which is with the demoniac. In chapter, or verse 1, it says this, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gardarenes, if I'm saying that right. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. You see the raw power, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not come or do not torment me. How did he know this? He didn't. Right? It's not like Jesus has a sign that says all that, hey, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I'm here. Right? It's not like he had that. These enemy knew who Jesus was. Verse 8, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then, then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. First of all, we need to understand it was illegal for any Jewish person to have pigs. They were unclean. They had no business having them. So when he cast them into them, while we think, well, that's not very nice. You just dealt you know, a bad thing against this poor guy, but yet he shouldn't have had them in the first place. But you can see the raw power of influence that they had on the pigs here. I mean, it was just what pig goes into the sea and just drowns himself? A lot of times, if you've ever seen the old movies and stuff where they're showing Jesus, they always have him run off a cliff or something. But that's really not what this says. It just says steep place, but that they ran into the sea. Not that it jumped off of a cliff, which gives you the idea of maybe running down a steep embankment into the water and just stayed there. Now, what animal doesn't fight for its life? It does, but this shows the raw power. You see it in the man that's bound. He's breaking chains and all this stuff. He's tormented completely, and it looks or shows the picture of the raw power of influence that they had. The last one is this, the spiritual host of wickedness in high places. It comes from the word paneros, not panera, but paneros. And it means something that is bad, vile, malevolent, vicious, impious, or malignant. It is significant here that Paul saves this Greek word for the very end of this verse because he's revealing the ultimate aim of Satan's domain. is that these demon spirits are sent forth from the spirit realm to afflict humanity in all manner of bad, vile, malevolent, vicious, impious, and malignant ways. And these would be the ones, because it talks about the spiritual host of wickedness in high places, they would be in this atmospheric area that we would have above us. And why not here on earth? Why wouldn't they be down here? Why are they up there? Because they know how God works. So when we pray, we see in Daniel chapter 10 a picture of what happens. You see, angels were created with a purpose. The word angel means messenger. That the messenger or the angels, it talks about in Hebrews, on how they are ministers to those that believe. They're ministering spirits. That they come to help us. And prayers are answered by God's messengers that he sends out. And in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you've set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. This is Daniel crying out for the people of Israel prior to this. He's praying to God for an answer. And, and you see the struggle that the messenger had getting through to Daniel. It's significant that the answer was sent the very first day that he prayed, but he got held up. These are the, all the things that were against him, against him getting his answer. And so you see that. You see the spiritual host of wickedness. There, there's the battle going on. You also see it with Elijah another time where Elisha's kind of freaking out, not knowing what to, go, what to do, and he says, God, open his eyes. He opens his eyes, and what does he see? All these chariots of fire, all these angelic beings that are wrapped all around them. There, because they're the ones that do the battle. Elijah had no worry. Why? Because he knew that God was there. He was on his side. And so, here's a question that I've asked for years. 
because I've read this passage a million times. I mean, maybe not a million, but a lot. Is that if we have more authority, and if we have more power, and if we have the greater one who's living inside of us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, then why does it seem that the church is so full of defeat? I've asked this question time and time and time again because it doesn't make any sense to me that if we have these things, why on earth are we constantly getting beat up? Well, interestingly enough, Rick Renner who is a Greek, knows everything Greek. This guy's smart. But he wrote a book, and in this book, he'd asked the very same question, almost verbatim of the one that I'd answered. And this is what the Lord told him. The reason the church is experiencing so much defeat is that the devil has something the church does not have. Now that's kind of scary, because what does he have that God didn't equip us with? Why, why would he leave us out here on an island? The church has more authority, more power, and the greater one living in them. But that power is disconnected and disjointed by a body that lacks discipline, organization, and commitment. That got me thinking. You see, the church is all out of sorts with itself. What is church today? People are seeking out feel-good sermons and preachers who avoid the hard and fast truth of the Word. People seek that out constantly. I mean, when you have churches that are just saying everybody's in this uni, uh, universalism where you don't have to do Jesus died for you, but you don't have to do anything. You don't have to repent. He died for you. He loves everybody. I told you before, I have a friend of mine that has completely gotten off into this, actually wrote a book about it. And what are they seeking out? They're seeking out something that feels good to them, something that, that they can wrap their head around, something that doesn't require anything of them. They're also ignorant of the enemy's devices, and this is the church. We're ignorant of the things that he does. We're ignorant of the things that he comes against. We talked about that in the spiritual warfare part, of the things that we try to do to do warfare with the enemy, and yet the Bible's not telling us to do those things. It's giving a specific purpose for everything that we do. And so because they're ignorant, and he says, don't be ignorant of the enemy's devices, that we may be able to stand the wiles of the enemy, but we don't have that because we're ignorant. This has resulted because of these different things in an unrenewed mind that has caused the church to call those things that are good evil and to call those things which are evil good. It's bad enough when unrepentant, unbelieving people do that. But let alone the church. Why are churches everywhere falling today for the lies of the enemy? Because they're ignorant of them. In an effort to stay relevant, they've been moved, more moved by culture than they have been by the very Word of God and the truth that God has in His Word. They've lost the heart and the mission that God has laid out. The church has gotten weak because we don't know the methods that the enemy uses and he creeps in. There's a whole lot of illustrations that's given all throughout about sheep and wolves. And it gives a picture of how wolves come in, in sheep's clothing. They look good, they sound good, they smell good, but yet they have nothing good to say. We'll talk about that more next week. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word put on here is the word indio. And it refers to it's like putting on a new suit. Suit has many pieces. 
to put it on. The whole means complete, as in all your need, all you need. It's saying to cover yourself completely with the complete armor of God, and you will withstand any attack from the enemy. But we have to know where he's coming from. We have to know what he's doing, and we have to stand on truth. The church today is weak because we have denied that the word of God is infallible, that the word of God is truth. That whatever God says, I accept, therefore that is it. And we try to argue with and We take passage of Scripture and say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. Let me explain it to you, God, exactly what you meant by that. You see it today with churches where the whole idea of this homosexual movement, which if you eliminate the biblical and spiritual aspect of it, is still very damaging. The average age that a lifelong lesbian lives is 45 years old. They lose 30 years of their life. This is statistics. This is the studies that have been done. I mean, if you take out the spiritual implication, it's still bad. It's still not good. But in our effort to, we want to reach everybody. Jesus was love. And so we've taken the word love and we've changed what God meant by love to what we think of love. And so you've got churches today that have changed. The Presbyterian Church USA, which doesn't mean it's every Presbyterian, but that's one sect of them, is now embracing this and saying, no, this is okay. United Methodist is another one. doesn't mean they all are, but as an as a overall uh, entity has said, no, this is okay. God just made you that way. Why? Because we're denying truth. We're denying the truth is there and that what God said is true and that maybe God's way is best and maybe the creator of the universe knows more than we know. And so in that denial of truth, we no longer have people that know their Bible. We have a, a bunch of people that maybe grab this piece of armor, or that piece of armor, or maybe even just know what the armor is, but never put it on. And so I'm going to read you a letter. I put this on Facebook this week, um, but I know some of you guys don't have Facebook. And this is a letter written by a pastor from a church out in California. And it's a letter to the government. It says this, a statement on marriage from Oceanside United Reformed Church to the U.S. government. And you're going to hear this thing loaded with Scripture. It says, August 4th in the year of our Lord, 2015, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one true God whom alone is King of kings and Lord of lords over all the nations from whom all executive, legislative, and judicial powers come, whose kingdom already came, is coming, and will come to consummate all things in heaven and on earth. I love the opening. That's so powerful. In the long history of God's people, there have been occasions when they have been called upon to speak to their civil rulers. The church, as the primary manifestation of the kingdom of God, is the place from which Almighty God speaks to not only His peculiar people, but to all peoples everywhere, including civil governments. It is not the calling of the institutional church, whether local or Catholic, which is just universal, to legislate all civil representations, interpret legislation as civil bridges, or apply legislation to civil executives. But it is our calling to be the prophetic voice of God in this world. Following the examples of prophets and apostles of old, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth concerning God and His relationship to the world. In response to the Supreme Court of the United States 5-4 to four decision to declare same-sex marriage as a right in all 50 states, the leadership of the Oceanside United Reformed Church is compelled to speak the truth of the Word of God in love. We call upon you, leaders in our, of our government, Mr. President, Senator Majority Leader McConnell, Speaker of the House Boehner, and Chief Justice John Roberts to repent of approving same-sex marriage and do all in your power to repeal it. 
We appeal to you to take up the word of God, which describes your duties and responsibility. In your ideal capacity, you are foster fathers and nursing mothers to the church. As you fathers and mothers, we have deep honor for your persons and positions of office. Into such high offices, God himself has instituted you over this nation as his servants for good and as punishers of wrongdoers. Because your task is so weighty, God commands us to perform or to offer for you constant supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Our prayer for you are in the same vein as Tertullian once wrote of Christian prayer in the Roman emperor whom persecuted Christians. This is Tertullian. Looking up to him, we Christians with the hands extended, because they are harmless, with head bare, because we are not ashamed, without a prayer leader, because we pray from the heart. Constantly beseech him on behalf of all emperors. We ask for them long life, undisturbed power, security at home, brave armies, a faithful senate, an upright people, a peaceful world, and everything for which a man or Caesar prays. For we pray the words of Jesus for you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And our prayer for the entire nation is Jesus as well. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they go on and on and on and on. And what do you hear in this? If you didn't pick up on all the Bible verses, it's because we don't know our word. They didn't come from the part, this is wrong. You're going against our First Amendment rights. You're doing this. They didn't approach it from the American position. They approached it from that we are the church of Jesus Christ. The one that God set up. And you have a place, Mr. Government, that God set up. And you will answer to Him. But we have a place as well. And we are the ones that stand up for truth, righteousness, and all the things that God has said. And when you go against them, we will not bow our knee to you. It's the same thing that Daniel did. It's the same thing that you see in the Old Testament. This was an attack, a strategy, a wile of the enemy that has come across against this nation. This is just one example. But the church has stayed so silent for so long that it's just par for the course. It's just one more thing. It's time for the church as the body of Christ to wake up. To give Him everything. To put on the whole armor of God. Is if we get so convinced that the word of God is true. That anything that goes against it, we will not stand for. We will change the world. Because we will do what Christ said. We will begin to make disciples. Not based off what we think. Based off what God said. Because God's principles are true. We will take the whole counsel of God. The word that he gave us. Written down by men of old. 66 books, 40 different authors, over 1,500 years that share the same story, that God's way is better than our way. That God would make a way where there seemed to be no way. That He will redeem us to Himself. And because of that, we owe Him everything. I give you my I give you my all. I live for you alone. With every breath that I take and every move that I make, I want you to have your way in me. The God that we serve we serve with everything. The principles that we have when it comes to spiritual warfare and the armor of God are there for a purpose. We don't just talk about it. We do it. If we can ever get the church past being just hearers of the word, but actually become doers of it, what kind of revolution would happen in this country? What kind of revolution would happen in this world? One of the things that Frank Turk said some of you guys know who he is. It was a conference I was out in North Carolina because he's addressed this issue head on as well as many others. The guy travels all over the world 
speaking to different leaders and things like that. And I asked him because I get frustrated with the whole everything. I mean, how anti-God we've suddenly become. And I said, are you seeing any fruit when you're dealing with these government, you know, higher-ups and all of that? And he's like, I'm not even trying to convince them. He's like, if we can get the church to just start acting like the church, they'll have no choice but to follow suit. Because if the church starts to become the church, then we'll start to vote like the church. And we'll start to demand things that the church should be demanding. Instead of compromising truth, we'll say, we know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And so, I want to take a minute. And I want to worship God. We've got a song here that I think is very powerful. And it's a short song, and it's, got, it's one chorus, basically, repeated over and over. But I want you to let that sink into your heart. I want you to stand up and say, God, what are you telling me through this message? Holy Spirit, what are you trying to convey to me today? Because, again, I've told you this before, I don't just put these together for no purpose. These are things that I feel like the Lord is taking us in. And that we must stand on truth, on the very Word of God. And so let's just stand up and let's worship Him.